Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four terrifying tales for you about mysteries on the seas, unusual abductions, dangers and adepts, and elixirs of immortality. So lock your doors, turn the lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first story this evening is by author Jeff Harton, entitled Dead Boats. I worked a shrimp boat called the Melissa on the Gulf. 
Hot, sweaty work, but all the shrimp you can eat, so there was that. Captain Mike was my boss, a wizened old salt. Rough around the edges, but a good man and a good boss. I worked with them out on the open waters for years before we split. Here's what happened. So one day we were out, early in an attempt to beat the other boats and get a good haul. I start cranking up the nets, position them over the collecting bin and let them go. Whole crap ton of shrimp this morning. Today is going to be a good and profitable trip at this rate. I look up at the nets and I see something caught up in it. Probably driftwood. But I gotta get it down or it'll rip the nets. Drop them down so I can pull it off. It's definitely not driftwood. I don't know what it is. It looks like a small arm. Like a child's arm, but it's not. It's a mottled green with brown flecks, but the texture almost seems like shark skin. Thin, long fingers, almost five inches long. I almost can't call them fingers. They're webbed to one another with a thin layer of skin almost translucent in the sun. I've never seen anything like it. Short, pointed claws where her fingernails would be in a person. I look down at the end of the arm and I see it's been twisted and broken, caught in the nets. At the end, it looks like it was sawn or gnawed off in a hurry by something dull. Dark red blood drips off of it, pooling onto the deck. I must have been in a trance staring at the odd thing because the next thing I remember is Captain Mike screaming at me, Get that thing off the boat right now! I snap and quickly work it free, tossing it into the water as fast as I can. Some of the blood stains my hands and shirt, but I rinse it off. Not the first time something's blood on me out here. As I clean up, I realize that Mike has turned the boat around. We're heading back to port. It's not even ten and he's calling it a day. I have bills to pay and maybe a hundred pounds of shrimp ain't gonna cut it. I'm about to have a few words with the captain, but one look at him and I see something is clearly off. He keeps glancing at the sides of the boat as he speeds up. While I'm tidying up, I see him pull out the emergency flare gun and check it, pulling out the extra flares, too. I guess this isn't the time to bother him. We get back, and as I finish up, Mike comes over to me and palms me $400. Hell of a lot more than I'd normally make. As I take the money, his hand grabs mine tightly and he pulls me in. Today's a short day. The extra is for you to keep quiet about why we had a short day. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. He lets my hand go and starts looking to the water. He seems lost, uneasy. This is a man who spent his whole damn life on a boat. I feel uncomfortable just seeing how uncertain he is. Yeah, I guess. Go out and have a few drinks. I know I will. Odd morning, but with pay like this, I hope I find one of those arm things every damn day. That evening, I find myself at the local bar, closest one to the waterfront where all the working stiffs congregate. We've been buying rounds for a few hours, BSing about work and relationships and general nothings. I've got a pretty good load on, and my curiosity gets the better of me. I ask in a low tone, So what's the strangest thing you've ever brought up in the nets? And, and don't say tires. I mean, a whole car would be weird, but there's a tire, like, all the time. I get a couple of answers. Will once found one of those inflatable sex dolls, 
Rick found a box with a whole set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. John found not one individual, but a pair of boots. Now, that that's odd. What was odd is that they were his exact size. Hell, he's even wearing them. I pushed a little further. Yeah, but you ever see anything like unnatural, like you couldn't explain it? I get a chorus of, nah. But Kirk suddenly gets real quiet and starts staring intently at the sweat beating off his glass. I think I got all I can now, information-wise. Now for a couple more beers. I'm flush today. My alarm goes off dutifully at 7.30 the next morning, and I dutifully go off at my alarm in a swarm of profanity. My head feels like it's going to explode. I wish it would. I dutifully crack open a club soda, swallow some ibuprofen, and turn up a hot shower. By eight, I'm recovering and on my way to the docks. I wander up to the Melissa, Captain Mike's boat. He's muttering something under his breath, staring at the deck. The deck's been all scratched to hell. Deep, long rakes, intently scratching all over the place. Most of them seeming to congregate where the nets release. Where the blood spilled yesterday. I stand behind Mike for a couple of minutes until he acknowledges me. Not going out today, not like this. Sorry. All right, but I gotta work, you know. I'm gonna ask around to see if anyone else is short a deck end. Do what you gotta do. See you tomorrow. Yeah, sure. I luck out and find another boat short a man. I like Mike, worked with him for years. But I work for paper, not a man. If he doesn't get his act together, I'll have to find another ship. We're having an uneventful day out on the other ship. I'm at the docks again, 8 a.m. sharp. Captain's got a whole load of bleach and cleaners. I wonder what's up. I'll pay you double if you help me lay the scrapes off, bleach down the whole thing, and refinish the deck. These scrapes and stains are bad for the boat. Damn, that's a lot of work. Double pay is double pay. Mike might be losing it, but I won't stop him from paying that much. I agree. It's a long day. Much harder than our usual trips out. Still profitable. Before I leave, Mike asks me to help him pull down the nets. That request stands out to me, as they're tough to move, heavy and unwieldy. You usually only have to do it if you've got a rip or something, but these are perfectly good. As I leave, I see Mike pile them up on the beach, pour some diesel on top, and light them up. Doesn't make any sense, burning good nets like that? And why burning? After working my hands and back that hard, I need a beer. I head out to the bar. I spot Kirk at the bar and fall in next to him. We talk a bit, starting with the weather. For other people, that may sound like tepid conversation, but out on the water, it's vital information. Eventually, I get enough in me, and we start talking about our boats, complaining about the bosses. It starts off as a good-natured pressure release. But when I start crying about all the extra work I had to do today with the deck and the nets, Kirk cuts me off abruptly. He's not crazy. You need to find another boat. Maybe somewhere a little farther up the coast. That's all I get out of him. It's like a stone wall after that. 
I'd assume Mike had had a couple too many years under the sun baking his brains, but Kirk is usually pretty good with advice. Still, the next morning, I head in to talk to Mike. We finish restoring the decks. Now he's on talking about possible residue on the sides or the propellers. Says he wants to scrape those down next. This is crazy. It's way beyond a two-man job. You need to dry dock a boat for all he wants. It's the start of the season. I, I know he doesn't have enough cash lying around for that. I spend the day trying to pressure wash the sides of the boat as a cheaper fix. The end of the day, Mike slips me a few hundred and looks me right in the eye. I don't want to go out there. Not with a ship like this. It's not ready. All right, but if there's no work for me, I need to look elsewhere. I understand. It's been good. He gives me a firm handshake and looks me right in the eye. Something is welling behind those eyes, but he fights it back. He turns to organize up the ropes. I notice that he's got a heavy revolver clipped to his side. It's not unusual for a boat to have a gun on board, but a hand cannon on your person? I'm starting to really worry about Mike. This is not normal behavior. I'm not sure if I can talk about this to anyone just yet. I flounder a bit, but find a job after a few days. I still see Captain Mike cleaning off the Melissa every day when I go to the docks. He's there scrubbing when I leave, and he's still scrubbing when I get back. There are new scrapes all over the hall, like something was scratching its way climbing up. Mike's become a pariah on the docks. No one wants to talk about it. And when they do, it's in low, hushed tones. Eventually, Captain Mike decides Melissa is finally clean, or he can't afford to go on without another day's bounty. He hires Carlos, the new guy in the docks, and they go out. I make a point of breaking the silence and talk to Mike to check in after they return at the end of the day. They've been catching much less than usual, like half, if not worse. Still, he's getting back out on the water, and that's got to be good for him. Carlos says he's been a little freaked out by the sharks that seem to tail him. I try to put him at rest, tell him that sharks aren't that big a deal. They're really just opportunistic bastards. I lie and make him feel a little better. Is that really a lie? One day, the Melissa doesn't come back. I wait at the docks, searching the horizon. It gets dark. Mike doesn't usually stay out this late. I go to the bar and try to drink my body weight in vodka. Weeks later, another captain finds the Melissa floating a few miles out to sea. I wasn't there, so the rest is hearsay and rumor. The police report is still sealed. Apparently, it was a bloodbath. Blood dried under the decks, most of it right under the nets. Pieces of viscera scattered everywhere, at least the pieces the seagulls hadn't eaten. The pilot room saw some of the worst of it. Just guts spread everywhere, some tufts of hair and skin, too. Like someone was flayed by someone who either didn't know what they were doing or was too enthusiastic to do it right. Mike used to sit there when we were out. Mike's revolver was found there, too. Four shots fired, but no idea if anyone was hit. Who could even tell whose blood belonged to who? In the deck, they found a long piece of metal embedded deep in the wood. 
Looked like it was a piece from an old boat anchor. It had been crudely sharpened. The investigation wrapped up. Definitely foul play was the conclusion. Maritime law says that dead boats found at sea become property of whoever finds them. Here's the thing. The captain, who found it, wanted absolutely no part of it. Refused to even set foot on it. He had it sunk over by the reefs. He even took his own ship and put it in the dry docks for the season to scrape off the wood and have it sanitized and refinished. He was talking about selling it and moving up to different places. He said the waters weren't as hospitable as they used to be. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our second story this evening is by author Sasha Brokov, entitled Violet. The predator casually surveyed his hunting ground. His camouflage consisted of a dry-cleaned white suit, matching silk shirt, and a carefully chosen tie. His sleeves were rolled just enough to display a fake Rolex, and the graying hair at his temples had been darkened with very cheap and very temporary dye. The same dye darkened his goatee. Beside his Italian leather loafers rested a slim and shiny black briefcase. In the cheap and tawdry decor of an American mall, he struck a sophisticated and preposterous contrast, which further accentuated his illusion. Sitting quietly and sipping his coffee, he stalked. A hunter of opportunity, he had no specific prey in mind. If the chance presented itself, he would pursue. If not, he would slink away empty-handed, as he most often did. Even nature's greatest predator, the tiger, was only successful on one out of seven hunts. He freely admitted a much worse ratio than that, but caution was his code and a successful hunting trip was one safely returned from. Lost opportunity was unfortunate, and merely so, but detection, capture, and consequences were unthinkable. His recent narrow escape in Charlotte was not something he was anxious to repeat. He had a group of co-eds as they passed by, barely bothering to conceal his stare. They were certainly cute, but 
too many, safety in numbers. Another young pair across the concourse caught his eye. Only two was a good sign. It meant they were looking for something, boys most likely, available and interested in being approached. Best of all, two could be played against each other. This could be an opening, but not too hasty. First, they needed to be watched. He had to be sure they were alone, that there weren't parents, older siblings, or other members of their clique about to intervene. They turned the corner, walked across the Sears entrance, and began heading towards him and the food court. His interest was evident as they approached and passed him by, averting their eyes and giggling together. They were both young blondes, thin, dressed to attract attention, and wearing too much makeup, the very picture of youthful naivete. It was tempting to take on both, but together they may be too much to handle safely. His lascivious eyes had already developed a preference, but he would not allow himself to be ruled by impulse. Pragmatism and opportunity must govern. He would first need to observe to determine which was dominant and play on that. He drew his cell phone, set the alarm for twenty minutes, and then rose to pursue his quarry. A sudden discomfort scratched inside his head, like an itch against his skull. It was followed by a compulsion which drew his gaze away from the blonde swaying hips to the other side of the concourse. There, half hidden behind a display, was a girl, her eyes intent on him. When their gazes met, she looked away quickly, but he understood. She had been watching him. Interesting. He quickly reassessed the situation. She seemed to be alone, young, brunette, and dressed all in black. Better and better. He always had a thing for the goth emo look. Perhaps here was an easier lower risk and more desirable target. Forgetting the blondes, he moved toward the new opportunity. As he rounded the corner and approached, she came more fully into view. Her long tresses flowed and framed her angular face, contrasting with her bright green eyes. Makeup accentuated her fair complexion, but her application was subdued, done with taste and skill. Her black T-shirt seemed a size too small and stretched a gruesome visage of a demonic pope across a generous bosom. The heavy metal T-shirt was tucked into a pair of skin-tight black jeans adorned with chains and patches, which themselves tucked into a pair of hard-looking boots strung with yet more chains. The projected image was that of a strong and rebellious young girl. The image he received was an overdeveloped, and naive creature whose premature independence would be her downfall. He approached, smiling broadly. Hi, how's it going? He asked. She looked over him and tersely replied, Hi. Skepticism was written across her face, which seemed natural enough. He continued, I noticed you from across the way, gesturing with his hand. The fluorescent lighting doesn't harm your complexion much. The what? Sorry, I'm a photographer by profession, 
and sometimes it can be hard to turn off. As he explained, he reached into his interior jacket pocket and deftly offered her a glossy business card. You see, I'm a talent scout and journeyman photographer for Teen Screen magazine. The name's Eric Vaggio, he said with an insincere smile. I'm actually prowling about now. Malls are great places to find subjects. The lighting is absolutely terrible. Whenever somebody looks halfway human under them, it suggests they're photogenic. They photograph well. She took the embossed and elegant card from his outstretched hand. His outward demeanor didn't betray his nerves. His heart was racing, and his stomach was twisted in knots. He felt like a kid asking this girl out. He resisted the powerful urge to leer at her body, but instead kept his gaze fixed on her face and eyes. She had such pretty eyes, a deep, ocean green, that you could almost feel yourself drowning in. Time enough for that later. Now he needed to maintain control to set the snare. You've heard of Teen Scream, of course, he elicited. Eh, kind of. She didn't talk much, but she was probably just nervous. We're always looking for new talent and new faces. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind joining me for a minute or so. He gestured toward the table he had been sitting at. We could take a few test shots and see how they come out. Maybe discuss the possibilities. Possibilities? Modeling, of course. Haven't you ever wanted to be a model? She replied with a dismissive snort. I never really thought about it. Well, you might want to. You can make some quick cash, and who knows, you might blow up and have a career. It won't take long. Say, I'll even buy you a coffee. That was a mistake, he thought. It might come off as too desperate. Time to change topic and distract her. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. She looked at him with her deep green eyes. Violet, she answered. Well, that's different. My daughter has a friend named Violet. She looks nothing like you, though. He never had a daughter. So, Violet, what's with that shirt? He asked as he started walking away. She took the bait and followed him as she explained. She had just finished talking as they reached the line at Dunkin' Donuts. That's really interesting, he lied. So how long have you liked that group? He needed to keep her talking and prattling on. It would set her at ease and make her feel like she had some control. They ordered, paid, and then clearly annoyed the teller by getting a receipt. I can write it off as a business expense, he explained to the clerk. The mention of business shifted the conversation back to his terms. As he led Violet back to an open table in the food court, he began to spin his practiced web of lies. He explained who he portrayed himself as, that he received a commission for each prospect he brought in, and a bonus if one was actually hired. That he didn't want to get her hopes up, but there was always a possibility. Bait and deception. With effort, he kept his eyes glued to hers and did his best to read her. She was a tough one, very impassive. There were times he didn't think she was buying it, but then she would raise her eyebrows, smile, or give some one-word response, something to show that she was still interested. He decided that this one was probably not too bright. 
It was getting late, and it was almost time to spring the trap. He pulled the best lure from his briefcase, an immaculate and lusciously printed 9 by 11 glossy folder made up to look like the cover of the magazine itself. It even included the name Teen Scream splayed across the top in its distinctive font. The cover girl was a broadly smiling young model wearing a glamorous evening gown and confidently strutting down a catwalk surrounded by photo flashes. The cover line surrounding the image read, Your Glamorous Career, How to Prepare for Your First Photo Shoot, and The Ins and Outs of Professional Modeling. Violet took the folder and opened it to find the inside flaps filled with bundles of documents all printed on high-grade bright white paper and prominently bearing the Team Scream letterhead. Affixed to the lower inside flap was another of Eric Avaggio's business cards tucked into specially cut slits. Violet's amazement was reflected in her eyes. His heart leapt. She was taking it all in, hook, line, and sinker. Twenty minutes were up, and the soft tone of his phone alarm wafted over the table. He pulled his phone from inside his jacket, glanced at the screen, and commented, Sorry, I need to take this. He rose, turned off the alarm, and held the phone to his ear. Charlotte, how's it coming? He said as he walked out of earshot, leaving Violet to nibble his carefully prepared bait. He mocked conversation from a safe distance for a short time before coming back to the table. Okay. Okay, well, what can you do? Just be prepared. I'll call you when I'm leaving to let you know. He turned off his phone and placed it back in his pocket. Sorry about that. She didn't respond, flipping pages of the brochures, apparently mesmerized by the glamour of it all. He continued, We were supposed to be in town for another couple of days, but corporate needs us back to do some reshoots. Violet looked up at him, her face as impassive as ever. Look, you seem like a nice kid, and I would feel guilty if I showed up, offered you this great opportunity, and then just disappeared. Besides, I would hate to have wasted the night and not get paid for it. I just talked to Charlotte. She and Bill are back at the studio packing up. If you want, I'll bring you by the studio. We'll take a few headshots. Nothing too elaborate. And then we can drop you off back here. Shouldn't take more than an hour or so. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Violet looked at him. Okay, I guess. He smiled as she rose and followed him through the mall towards Sears, the exit, the van, her nightmare, and his dream. He started with a quick apology for leaving so fast. We usually get your hair and makeup then. But quickly segued the conversation back to her to get her talking. She needed to be distracted, not thinking about the situation, not noticing that she was walking into a trap. Keep asking questions, keep her talking, hide his growing sense of anticipation, lead her along, almost there. They exited the mall through the rear exit entry for Sears and walked under the dimly illuminated extended carport. This was the hard moment. This was the moment he had lost the girl in Charlotte, 
the incongruity of the ugly white windowless van and the posh photographer had been too stark for him. He led Violet around to the passenger's side and opened the door for her. She stopped, a look of concern on her face. Cool as ever, he smiled at her. Not what you expected, eh? Well, the camera equipment doesn't fit so well in my bends. Besides, Charlotte, Ben, and I can all fit comfortably in this. Whoops. Heard he said Ben instead of Bill? What you notice? Uh, Ben's? she asked. I prefer Jags, and she ambled inside. Relief and elation washed over him. Practically dancing around the back of the vehicle, he climbed into the driver's seat. It was over now. There was no escape. She was his. If she tried to get out, he could easily grab her, and if she caused a fuss, there was a fillet knife hidden under the visor. He breathed a sigh of relief and looked over his catch with satisfaction. God, she was sexy. It had been weeks since his last catch, and he had a lot of frustration to vent. Aren't you going to call Charlotte and Ben to tell them we're coming? She asked as he smiled and chuckled. Or is it Bill? The innocence in her eyes replaced by a deviousness. You should have stuck with just Charlotte. It's easier to remember. Do you always use the names of cities you visited? What the... He didn't finish the words as blackness enveloped him. Thump. The sound awoke Violet from her restless sleep. Her back, neck, and whole body was stiff and sore from sleeping in the van's passenger seat. Thump. Rattle. She climbed out of the van to stretch in the early morning light to work the kinks out of her joints and gather her thoughts. The van was hidden out of sight down a rarely used dirt road past the overflow parking lot behind the mall. It seemed like the perfect place to stash the van until she could get control of the situation. There was no going back now, and it felt good to finally start. One would have thought it had been easy to find a vulnerable man, somebody she could use, control, and practice on. She knew there were plenty of overly romantic young men who dreamed of whisking away a beautiful young girl and dedicate their lives to her, but they were all too shy to make a move and too nervous to act when she approached. No matter now, she had found her way out and she was never going to see Fred and Rose Jones again. Rose was an idiot and bad enough. Fred Jones was the real problem. He had the most disgusting thoughts about his foster daughter. Rose may not have realized why she and Fred were having so much sex recently, but Violet understood, and Fred knew damn well. At dinner, he would watch Violet put food in her mouth and fantasize. He would listen to Violet take showers, and even pressed his ear to the door when she went to the bathroom. The humiliation was too much, and worse, he knew that the urge to act was growing day by day in Fred's mind. That didn't matter now. By the end of the day, she would be well beyond Fred's reach. Limber and as ready as she could be, she opened the passenger door and climbed back into the van. The rear section was protected from view, 
by a heavy curtain which she brushed aside to reveal the cavernous rear interior. There lay the creep, right where she left him, his hands cuffed behind his back and legs elevated and tied to the van's interior frame. He was no longer the picture of affluence and sophistication he had presented the night before. Disheveled, unshaven, wrinkled, and sweat-stained, he looked more like the dirty old man he was. As the light broke on him, he squinted before focusing on her. He didn't even try to speak through his gag. Good morning. Did you sleep well? His eyes danced away over her body, fixing first at his fillet knife that she now wore in her belt, but then scrutinizing her chest before moving back to her face. Seizing the opportunity, her mind grabbed his gaze and held. She looked deeply into his eyes, concentrated, and she saw. Not words, but images. Violet saw him remembering her buxom chest from the night before, and that she didn't fill out her T-shirt the same way. They're called padded bras, moron. Men, all you can ever think of is her chests. She kicked a cardboard box at her feet. It was full of teen scream folders, like the one she had been shown the night before. Quite the operation you have here, Mr. Avaggio. But wait... That isn't your real name, is it? You're actually John Johnson, isn't that right? She could see the shock and surprise in his mind, then actual coherent thoughts. She knows my name. That isn't good. She smiled sarcastically and bluffed. I know much more than you think. His mind spoke of anger. Escape. Make her pay. Make her scream. No, I won't be doing any screaming for you. She waited a moment to let it sink in and gauge the response. You're going to play by my rules, or I'm going to the police. You've been a bad boy, Mr. Johnson. She held up a pair of girls' pink underwear, which she had found in the glove box. Its significance had intrigued her, but she needed his mind conscious to learn more. The sight of the underwear brought a sudden change in Johnson's mind. The rage was washed away and replaced by fear and something else. Oh, she could sense there was more, much more, and thinly protected. Violet pushed deeper and soon found a name. Eliza. Speaking the name directly into his mind like a spell, conjured forth images of a bright and beautiful girl with curly red hair, deep blue eyes, and a fresh and youthful face. The scene was abruptly shred by visions beyond Violet's naive imagination as the memories in Johnson's black mind replayed. She could see Eliza in the van, on the mattress, bound in those restraints. She saw him and what he did to her. Violet heard the screams, saw his lustful and brutal pleasure and witnessed her pain. Realization flooded in on Violet's unsuspecting mind and struck her dumb. Silently and slowly, she withdrew from the mental chamber of horrors and into the crisp and fresh outdoors. 
Violet breathed deeply, as though the brisk air could cleanse her of the burden of what she had just experienced. She crouched down at the base of a nearby tree and cried, and wretched, and cried. She cried for Eliza, and cried even more when she realized the fate that had been in store for herself. She'd never imagined that such cruelty and evil could actually exist in the world. Oh, she'd heard of such things, but to hear about it or to see it in a movie was so abstract. Those were things that happened to imaginary people in faraway places. Now it was real, and in a van not twenty feet away. Violet rose and began wandering the dirt road away from the mall and deeper into the forest. She needed to think. What to do? The safest thing was to walk back to the mall and turn the creep in. But where would that leave her? Back in the care of Rose and Fred Jones, and that was the best case. More likely she'd be dumped back at Juvie for God knows how long, to be watched over by more perverts before being assigned to another rent-a-family paid to pretend to care about her. She had planned and built herself up to this for a long time. Now she had started. Maybe this Johnson was the perfect tool. He was on the run and couldn't turn her in to the police. He was dangerous, to be sure, but she had ways, and she had already overpowered him. All she really needed was to keep control for a little while, to use him for a day at the most, but there was something else. There was Eliza. Witnessing her pain and suffering had forged a feeling of sisterhood in Violet's heart, and she couldn't walk away from that. Johnson would need to pay for what he had done. It was late afternoon when she re-entered the van. Locking windows, the van's rear interior was hot and smelt strongly of Johnson's funk. Violet paid no mind, determined not to show weakness. Okay, Johnny, I've decided that I can use you. She said in her most confident voice. He looked at her dispassionately, deeply breathing the stale, rank air. The fear and panic were gone. Now she read an acceptance. No, it was patience. He had control of himself and was watching, waiting for an opportunity. What is this? How does she know my name? I know a lot of things, Johnny. Like, I know what a sick man you are. She couldn't hide the disgust in her voice. No things. What could she know? The money, that's it. I'll tell her about the money, and when she gives me the chance... Where's the money? All she needed to do was ask, and his mind betrayed him. She slipped into the front of the van and reached up and under the driver's seat, right where his mind had told her. She felt and pulled out the Ziploc bag filled with cash, lots of cash... She was tempted to learn how he got it, but after her last excursion into the depths of his mind, she wasn't sure she was ready to find out. Without counting, Violet returned to the rear section to face her captive. Johnson's eyes widened at the sight of his stash in her thin hand. Oh, Christ! How could she? 
She didn't know. She asked. She, she can read my mind. No, this is a game. It's some kind of trick. No tricks, Johnny. What are you? I don't know what I am, but maybe together we can find out. She reached deep into his consciousness and dug, looking. It didn't take long, and when she found it, she held it lightly. Oh, God! I can feel her! Get out! Let me go! Let me go! She sneered at him. I don't think so. I want you to pay attention and feel this. And that thing in his mind, which she held so lightly... Her mental grip turned rigid as she twisted and jerked. She felt his pain erupt around her like lightning. In truth, she didn't know what it was she tore at, simply that it caused terrible agony in her victim, but never seemed to cause any permanent damage. Best of all, it didn't even leave a mark. Johnson winced and closed his eyes, breaking her connection and allowing the pain to subside. Trembling with the aftershocks of pain, Johnson opened his eyes and Violet re-entered his mind. She needed to follow up with another demonstration to overawe him and head off any attempt at resistance. She now spoke directly into his mind. That is just a taste of what I can do. She could feel his unreasoning fear mixed with the memory of pain. No thoughts, just fear. Good, she thought. He needs to be afraid. I'm going to untie your legs now. Don't even imagine escape. Do you understand? Still fear. Pay attention, Johnny. As she stabbed at that soft spot just enough to scare him as she screamed in his mind. Do you understand? Yes, understand. She undid the tangle of rope, suspending his legs. As they dropped, a look of relief passed over his face. Move your hands to your front, slowly. She watched as he moved his legs up and between his still-cuffed hands. He dared have thought that she would release his hands as well. Fat chance, get up, you're driving. He looked at her perplexed his mind echoing the confusion. We've been here long enough. They'll be looking for me by now. Best to leave that out there in vague. Let him fill in the details. We need to be moving and you're my ticket out. She gave him a wide berth as he moved into the driver's seat, even exiting the passenger side, the palm of her hand resting on the handle of the fillet knife. Once he was seated, she commanded, Buckle yourself in. After she heard the click of the belt, Violet climbed behind the passenger seat, keeping her distance from her prisoner, and took a seat in the rear of the van. She tossed the keys onto Johnson's lap. Now start the van and drive. He paused, and a moment of silence passed. Where am I driving to? He asked aloud. Leave the mall by the front entrance, turn left at the light, take the exit onto the highway, headed north. At the split, bear left and continue north. He put the van in gear and headed out. I'm hungry. Shut up. You need to feed me. 
No, I don't. She thought better and added, I'm almost done with you. You can eat then. They'd been driving for nearly three hours, and it was already past dark. She hadn't eaten breakfast, so her hunger had been manageable for most of the day. But now she had to admit that she was also hungry. From the back of the van, she craned her neck and saw that they were getting low on gas. The needle was getting close to E. They needed to stop, and Violet needed a rest. She would need her strength to deal with the creep and didn't want to risk being tired or hungry if he pulled something. She had seen signage on the highway for motels and gas stations and directed him to take the next exit. Just off the ramp was a Motel A that would serve nicely. She had him pull in and park on the far side of the building, where the van wouldn't be seen easily from the office. Turn off the engine and give me the keys. He turned off the van, but hesitated to hand her the keys. She tried not to let her nervousness show as she drew the six-inch blade from its sheath. Move your ass into the back and lie down. She'd been tempted to enter his mind and try to dominate his body, but that was risky. It was a very difficult skill that she had never managed well enough. She was tired. He was alert to her abilities, and if she failed, it may provide the opening Johnson was waiting for. Better to use the old-fashioned way. The blade forced obedience well enough, and Johnson did as he was told. She directed him back onto the mattress and his still-cuffed hands back behind his back. She could read the patience in his mind. He was looking for an opportunity, just not seeing one. He reluctantly complied and allowed himself to be tied again. I'll be fast, so don't even think about it. She commanded as she peeled out several bills from the wad of cash. She'd counted it earlier and found it to be exactly $2,389. She grabbed the keys from the ignition and climbed out of the van. Approaching the motel office, she realized that no talents were needed to size up the desk clerk. He was an older Indian gentleman, probably the owner, probably married to a diminutive Indian woman, perhaps intrigued by the cute young thing walking into his business, but not fool enough to think anything past a business opportunity. Violet didn't bother to expose her flesh and instead exposed the bills. She soon walked out of the office with few questions and the key to room 119. She had made sure that Patel, which was the name displayed on his desk, found something to busy himself with in the back for the next few minutes, so she wasn't worried about being observed. Johnson was still not in the mood to test the point of the fillet knife and submitted to being herded into the motel room. Sit, Violet commanded, pointing at a chair she had positioned against the bed frame. He gave her an askance look, but did as he was told. Once sitting, she tied his limbs and midsection tightly to the legs, arms, and back of the chair. She used much more rope than needed and tied the knots in large, clumsy tangles. Johnson had plenty of rope in his van, and she used the rest to secure the chair itself to the bed frame. Feeling more secure, Violet moved to the desk by the bed and started opening the drawers. 
The top contained a maroon Gideon Bible, but the second had a few flyers for local pizza places. She selected one and, using the phone on the desk, placed an order for a large with extra cheese with anchovies. I don't like anchovies, he called. Yeah, well, what you like is messed up. She threw back at him. They shared silence as Violet rapidly flicked through the channels on the TV until the pizza arrived. The transaction was conducted outside the room and the pizza eaten in silence by Violet alone. Johnson watched in resentment, but knew better than to open his mouth. After finishing her meal, Violet took several gulps of soda from the styrofoam cup, so generously provided by management, and braced herself for what she knew must now come. She dragged a chair over and sat facing Johnson from several feet away. He looked sweaty, smelly, famished, and beaten. Violet pierced into his eyes and entered his mind. Okay, you rapist. Tell me about Eliza. Twenty minutes later, Violet was outside, sitting on the concrete floor, her back against the door to room 119, with tears pouring down her face. Johnson had traded her to the grand tour of his depraved mind. She'd seen it all. His body may be weary, but his mind was strong. He had gleefully shown her more than she or anyone would ever want to see. Things that would haunt her the rest of her days. Many times she had needed to use pain to make him relent on the details and focus on the necessary information. It was so much worse than she'd expected. There hadn't been just Eliza. Flashes of many young girls had come and gone. She didn't need to survey the details to know their fates. Violet tried to hold back the flood of obscenity as best she could. If she saw too much, she would feel the same responsibility to all of them that she felt for Eliza. Violet knew she wasn't yet strong enough to fight for all of them. No, she would do justice to this one, and that one would need to stand for all. The exertion had been worth it. She had learned what she wanted to know. As she gradually built the strength to walk past that thing tied up in the room, she sat and she shook, unaware of Patel in the dimly lit office. He had watched scenes like this unfold so many times in his parking lot. He tried to be sympathetic, but there was nothing he could do except guard his own interests. Customers like these, while common, sometimes meant trouble. Patel thought it best to keep a careful watch. The tingling in his arms slowly subsided, but the soreness remained. Good thing she didn't know how to tie a proper knot. Witch, demon, or whatever she was, she knew, and that made her dangerous. But she had a weakness, the eyes. If he could get out of this chair and avoid her eyes, he could get control of the situation. Then he would make her silent for good. Johnson dwelt on these thoughts as he rocked the chair back and forth, back and forth, the knots slowly loosening. His hobby had taught him the benefits of tying a good knot, 
and he'd watched her tie enough clumsy tangles to see his chance. With a good heave, he threw his weight and felt the chair as it went just up to the tipping point. With one last hard heave, the chair tipped over, twisted the now slack ropes, and shattered on the floor. He knew Ruckus had certainly woken the witch, who had locked herself in the bathroom, but he had a head start. His hands were still in cuffs, but he easily removed the loops of rope from his body and stumbled to his unsteady feet. On shaky legs, he went for the door and tumbled outside and into the lights of the parking lot. The movement on the security camera caught Patel's eyes as Johnson lifted himself and stumbled, fell again, rose and shambled the last few feet to the van. Patel thought the man had fallen again, but now he could clearly see the man reaching up under the van's rear wheel and frame. Patel saw only briefly as the man pulled out a hidden gun and headed back towards the open door of room 119. Movement was relieving the soreness in Johnson's legs as he rose from under the van, the comforting weight of the 357 in his grip. He had no plan past killing the witch and making a fast getaway. She knew too much to live and was much too dangerous to try to capture. He re-entered the dark room, his eyes dilated from the streetlight outside. Despite the gloom, he could see the bathroom door wide open. Movement. Without looking, he blasted in the general direction, the sound reverberating in the small room. Again, something moved, and he blasted away, each shot flying wild. He was running out of time. Taking a grip of the pistol with both hands, he risked looking over the sights to aim, but too late. He had her in his sights, and he was in hers. Like a bull, he felt the impact of her entering his mind. Drop the gun, he heard in a strange-accented male voice from behind. The command was followed by the distinctive cocking of a shotgun. Drop the gun, she commanded in his mind. I said, drop the gun, the man ordered again. Drop the gun. Tried to pull the trigger, but he could feel her burning in his brain, trying to gain control. His hand shook, muscles and synapses torn by conflicting orders. He felt her groping for the hurting place. Drop the gun! Drop the gun! I said, drop it! Every bit of his mind had focused on struggle with the mental invader. Unable to reason or think ahead, he held desperately to what little control he had, not to lower the gun, to keep her in his sights, to find a way to escape. The room lit with the alternating blue and red lights of a police cruiser. Sweat poured down Johnson's face. The hunter had been cornered. Even if he could somehow pull the trigger and kill this monster, he would never get away. They would find the van, find his implements, the pictures on his computer. His hand shook and the sweat poured. Escape! Suddenly, Johnson's mental commands changed, causing Violet to briefly lose her grip. In that split second of freedom, Johnson acted. He placed the gun barrel to his own temple and pulled the trigger. The deafening report was followed by a profound silence as Johnson's head poured its contents on the unused polyester bedspread. Officer Roscoe heard the shot as he exited the cruiser 
and approached the motel room with his gun drawn. Patel, shotgun in hand, gave the officer a wide berth to enter. They had been through this routine before, and both knew what was expected of the other. With the arrival of Roscoe and the suicide of the man, Patel assumed the situation was under control. I need to check on my guests. He called to Roscoe in his heavily accented English. But first, Patel went back to the office to return the shotgun. He knew better than to be an armed foreign man banging on motel doors at night. Roscoe quickly assessed the situation in the room. The man was clearly dead. No coroner was going to be needed to make that call. A shadow attracted his eyes. Hands up! He cried as he trained his weapon on the dark specter. Roscoe's eyes adjusted to the gloom and he found himself aiming at a lithe young girl staring intently at him. Somehow Roscoe found himself lowering the gun. He knew this was against regulations, but at the moment he seemed to neither care nor even be aware he was doing it. The only thing he could do, the only thing he wanted to do, was drown in this young girl's beautiful green eyes. A sense of calm came over Roscoe as she moved closer, their gazes locked. His view of the gloomy motel room clouded, dissolved, and gave way to a daydream like vision of a parking lot surrounded by trees. It seemed so surreal, yet as vivid as a memory. He could even make out the sign reading Freetown State Forest. Beside the sign, he spied a large white van, the very same he had noted in the parking lot outside the motel room, as though he was looking through the eyes of another, and the scene moved forward past the van, along a path into the woods, then to the right, off the path, through the brambles, and past a large boulder. The view continued to move deeper into the overgrowth to a fallen tree, and behind that tree, a long, shallow hole partway filled by a black trash bag. Lingering on the plastic bulk, a soft female voice whispered in his mind, Find her. The vision, daydream, continued as he saw the bag covered under dirt and then leaves. The viewer looked up and Roscoe could see the white van in the parking lot through the woods, perhaps a hundred feet away. Again, the voice, find her, forget me, find her. The officer continued to stare dumbly as Violet slipped past him, peeked around the doorway, disappeared into the night, and was gone. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases 
including premium versions of our other shows, such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jivey channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now 
All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.